What is up, everyone? My name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about a political and societal culture as a whole. How was everyone's week? Hopefully you guys enjoyed your week, spending time with your family, your friends, watching the latter half of the Australian Open, specifically the Australian Open final. There's a little bit of news that we can get into for today. In terms of news outside of the tennis world, we can discuss Shah Rukh Khan's new film, Bataan, being released, and my overall thoughts on it, why I particularly enjoyed it, uh, why I do think that this will be reinvigorate uh, cinema, uh, especially abroad in India, uh, in terms of getting more people involved and invested in, in the films that are being released. So overall, I enjoy my film. I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about it uh, later in the podcast, but overall, I did enjoy it. We can also discuss Jordan Peterson on Rogan, his overall appearance on, on the Joe Rogan podcast. It was released back on Saturday, and I had the fortune of, of listening to it uh, in all of its glory. So I'll discuss it, and obviously, as is with every Jordan Peterson video that I release, it's very divisive. There are a lot of comments and people that do not care about my overall thoughts on Peterson, and they do not like the fact that I critique Peterson. But no worries. Uh, I still like certain parts of Jordan Peterson. Uh, I, I still think that there are still good things about him. But just know, whenever I talk about Jordan Peterson, I'm bound to get somebody to be like, you don't get him. It's like, no, I do. I understand what he's going for, but... We'll talk about Jordan Peterson on Rogan. We'll talk about that. Uh, and to end off, we'll talk about my weekly pick. So each and every week, I recommend a book, a piece of art, a film that I really enjoy. This week, it's a film. And it's on AMC Plus, Shudder. Uh, AMC Plus, but also on Shudder. Uh, horror film. Really good film. I'll definitely be recommending it to you guys at the end of the podcast. But we're all start today. will be... The Australian Open final recap. So if you guys didn't see on my podcast channel, I released a YouTube short that got like negative 300 views, uh, negative 300 views because that's how I felt after releasing it. Uh, but I, re I released a YouTube short detailing my recap on the Novak Djokovic versus Stefano Tsitsipas Australian Open final and it got zero views, whatever, it's fine. I'm not taken back by it. It's tennis. I get it. Um, not many people enjoy tennis as much as football. Uh, but again, I uh, released a, a recap of it on my YouTube channel. So go watch if you haven't already. But uh, this will be a more in-depth breakdown of the match. And again, this happened yesterday at around like 3.30 a.m. here in the States, Eastern Standard Time. I'm sure it happened 7 or 8 p.m. because there was a 16-hour time difference between Australia and uh, the Eastern Standard Time of the United States. Uh, but overall, I enjoyed my time watching this match. Uh, Seven Sitsipas played against Novak Djokovic, um, and Novak Djokovic won in straight sets 6-3, 7-6, 7-4 was a tiebreaker for that second set. 7-6, 7-5 was the final tiebreaker for that third and final set. Uh, overall, the reason as to why Novak Djokovic won against Stefano Sitsipas was because of the fact that he was able to allow... Stefano sets boss to make unforced errors on his forehand side, uh, as well as making sure that Stefano sets boss was not able to succeed in other forms uh, at the baseline. Uh, Stefano sets boss did get some success early on with the drop shot, which I was a sort of I sort of thought to myself maybe he should implement that drop shot more often. Uh, if this was Carlos Alcaraz, it would have been an entirely different story. I think this would have gone five sets. Uh, Novak Djokovic would have won, uh, in my opinion. But 
I definitely do think that he was he sort of missed on that. Uh, also, I think the, the another reason as to why Stonis of the Palace lost this match was because of the fact that he was not able to break whatsoever in this match. Yeah, he did break in that first game of that third set, but then Novak Djokovic would quickly break back to tie it up one apiece, and they would go to tiebreakers because neither of them could break. Uh, but Novak Djokovic was able to break in key times in this match, such as the middle part of that first set, uh, as well as doing well in the return game, uh, which Stefan Sitspas did not do that well in. So overall, the return game was not that great. His inability to break and the amount of unforced errors that were accumulated in that first set on his forehand side, as well as certain times in this match that were critical, uh, were some of the main reasons as to why Stefan Sitspas lost to Novak Djokovic. Uh, let's get into that first set, shall we? So first set, early break, by, as I said before, early break by Djokovic, uh, plus a collection of unforced errors on Steph's forehand, gets Joker the set. Uh, so I'll sort of give you my overall thoughts, and I'll give you an abridged version as to what transpired in that first set. So let, let's here goes nothing. So Steph comes back from love 30 to hole and tie to make it one all. Um, there was a great backhand on the line by Novak Djokovic uh, that got him the love hole on two, to, to make it 2-1 changeover. Again, small things like that uh, really add a lot uh, to a person's arsenal, to a person's ability to win. You know, backhand on the line by Novak Djokovic is very Joker-esque. You know, the reason as to why Novak Djokovic is so great with long rallies is because he's able to have pace to it. Not only pace, but just offer flat ground strokes that sort of tick opponents off in a lot of ways. You know, again, when you talk when you think about Novak Djokovic, he doesn't have the elegance of a Roger backhand. Right? He doesn't have the tenacity or the power of a Nadal forehand. But what he does have is the mental wit to take you far and to make you get pushed in a way that you've never been pushed before. And that's something that Novak Djokovic is able to do more than more so than any other individual. Case in point, this 28-shot rally. So there was a 28-shot rally by the two as Stefano Sitspas swing while he gets him the point, 15-0, one serving two. Obviously, that's a point to Stefano Sitspas, but still, 28-shot rally. Again, stuff like that, small things like that really wear and tear down an opponent. And while it may not be apparent, while the point is in progress, it definitely is by the end of the match. Uh, so... Overall, that's one, that's one of the few times where Stefanos Tsitsipas' shot selection was quite decent. You know, that swing volley was quite nice. Uh, there was a double fall by Stefanos Tsitsipas that got that gets Joker the early break to make a 3-1. Again, a costly double fall. Stefanos Tsitsipas did not have that many double faults at, per se in this match. I think he had three in total, maybe four. Uh, he did have a lot of aces. Uh, but... Again, the double faults are very, very costly, and this was one. Of, this was the most costly double fault for Sitsipas because that double fault really turned the tables and really allowed Novak Djokovic to take advantage of that fault. So overall, that was just a nice awareness by Djokovic as he was able to get up a break three-one and take that first set in stride. Uh, Djokovic's forehand near the net gets him the clean winner and holds to make it four-one. Great backhand cross-court passing shot by Djokovic to make it left 15, one serving four, Stefano Sitsipas serving. Again, those backhands were just a thing of beauty in that first set. Um, obviously, we all know Djokovic does really good, well on the, on the forehand, especially down the line. And, you know, that's something that we sort of expect from uh, Djokovic. But again, those backhands are just a thing of beauty. You know, we saw that in the 2012 Minuto ATP Finals with uh, Federer and with Djokovic. I mean, I think his last point was a backhand down the line, clean winner. 
uh, if I remember myself correctly. So it's it's something that we've all known before that he's exceptionally well when it comes to backhands. Um, so Ace gets the jo- gets Joker the set five two. Uh, sorry, Ace gets Joker the game five two. Uh, Seth returns over goes wide as Joker takes set 6-3. So I know this is a little bit of an abridged version. I said that in the rundown. But yeah, overall that first set, just a clean, clean win for Djokovic on all fronts of the courts. You know, yeah, while there were times where he could have bageled him, I'm, I'm sure that could have been the case. I think overall this was just a nice, solid set for Novak Djokovic. And we laid the groundwork for the second set and the third set where it was a little bit more competitive. So that second set, I got to give Stefano Tsitsipas' credit here. You know, he played well in the second set. And he improved in a lot of ways. Uh, he did, he was not broken at all in this in this set. Uh, it went to tiebreakers. But again, uh, there were still faults within his game. Uh, especially, in, in particular, his return serve. I felt as if his return serve was lacking. And not because of the inability to break. Because Djokovic was not able to break as well. But... When you think about his return serve, you know, I also think about his return serve in, in regards to his, the tiebreakers. I felt as if as soon as Djokovic got the serve, as soon as he tossed the ball out, you just knew that it would be his point on both sides, on both the second set and the third set. When you saw that ball tossed by Djokovic and as he was getting ready to serve, you knew that that point was going to go to Djokovic. It was just one of those things. And unless there was like, you know... Fan interference, you know, obviously in that third set, somebody yelled uh, in, in the middle of like a 5-1 or 5-2. Uh, obviously, it's going, it's getting to the point now where the Australian Open audience is getting worse than the U.S. Open audience. It's getting to that point now, uh, as evidenced by that Medvedev final last year. Uh, but overall, the reason as to why I thought Sitsipas did not that great in that second and third set and why he lost was that return serve was that return game in particular. He was not able to break Djokovic whatsoever in that second set. And while, yeah, while he did get the break in that third set, Djokovic came back and responded with another break. So, again, it's one of those things where he just struggled to find momentum in this match on the return serve. And I think that's something that Stavros needs to improve on if he wants to be able to win a major eventually in his career. Uh, so overall, let's get into that second set. So drop shot by Steph gets him the love hole to one. Uh, Joker holds after falling behind 15-30 make a two ball. Uh, again, he improved on his forehands. Stefano Sinspaz improved on his forehands. While there were times where the forehands were lacking, uh, overall, the forehands were improving in that, in that second set. So there was a cross-court forehand by Stefano Sinspaz that gets him the hole 3-2. Joker makes a three all after forehand down the line by Stefano Sinspaz goes out. So again... His forehands in the second and third set were erratic. Uh, there are times where it was very good. There are times where it was very beneficial for him and for his overall confidence. But in terms of other areas for his forehand, it was clearly lacking. So, uh, again, he needs to address that for the play season if he wants to compete against Alcaraz, Holger Runa, uh, Nadal, Djokovic, and all the individuals that are scheduled to be favorites uh, for, the, for the major. So yeah, I mentioned the forehand on the line goes out. Great defense by Joker as slice volley by Stefan Sitsipas goes out. Um, again, I felt like his net game could have been a little bit better as well. Uh, but again, that's sort of like a nitpicky thing. I think mostly in regards to his return serve, that's where I, I sort of focus on. Uh, again, he did great on the drop shots. I mean, he, he in terms of drop shots, I mean, that sort of that really fooled Novak Djokovic. 
in a lot of ways. So if he was able to incorporate the drop shot, I think that'd be great. Um, again, when he when he does these kind of volleys that are uh, um, kind of you know not as well thought out, then it, it can complicate things. Because again, I remember that slice volley by by Sevensibots. I mean, it was like five, ten yards out, and he had complete control of that rally. Uh, so again, it's those are some of the nitpicky things. But again, I, I think mostly in regards to return serve, that's where the fault should be at. That's where the most blame should be at. Uh, the 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 net game was okay. Uh, it was not a point of concern for for uh, Stephens' response. It was more so within the regard to his return serve, in terms of, ret- of his return game, that was the main issue for his loss. It was not the not the net game, but anyways. So reflex volley by Djokovic goes out as Stefan Sitspas holds to make a 4-3 changeover. Uh, volley by Stefan Sitspas doesn't go over the net as Djokovic then holds with Steph, uh, Steph to make it 4-all. Um, maybe the, the the net game could have been better in that second set. Uh, now that I think about it, <laughs> now that I think about it, maybe it could have been better. Uh, Joker holds to make a 5-all. Forehand by Steph is dead of the net as it becomes 6-all tiebreaker time. So this is into tiebreakers. Djokovic's forehand online makes it 2-1. Uh, Steph can return for a serve as Djokovic gets the breaks in four. I know I jumped throughout that entire tiebreaker, but if you watch that uh, second set tiebreaker, you knew that it was Djokovic to win. Um, you just knew from the get-go on that age and experience beats exuberance 10 times out of 10. Uh, the only times when it, it is in is when you're dealing with a ranked opponent against an unranked opponent. Uh, but overall, when you're dealing with age and experience that's going to trump you the exuberance in, in a lot of ways and that second second set tiebreaker i thought was that in terms of the overall quality of this tiebreaker i thought it was a little bit better than the third set because you saw the crowd be more hostile to djokovic i mean the crowd was not that into djokovic i'm going to be quite honest with you um i know a lot of people were saying oh it, it's you know there's equal applause for both players no one based on what i heard and i, I was hearing the espn telecast with uh fowler with McEnroe. Or I assume it was McEnroe. One of the McEnroe's, Patrick or John. Uh, when I was hearing on the ESPN telecast, it seemed as if the crowd was openly on Stefan Sitsipas' side. Uh, so I, I'm, I, I don't get, I don't know the notion. I don't get where this notion came from, where people were supportive of, of Djokovic because on my, in my earbuds, it doesn't, it didn't seem like that, and I, I blared it. I was blaring it. So again, just my overall thoughts on it. I didn't feel like the the Austrian Open audience really cared for Djokovic, which worked in his favor. I mean, I think Djokovic relishes in that role, in that spotlight, in that ability to prove the naysayers and the doubters wrong. So I, I really think that's that's something that really gets his gears going. And how could it not, you know? All right, so let's get into that third set. So again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there wasn't really a break by seven sets pause in that third set. Uh, he was able to go up one love, and he had momentum on, on his side in the beginning. But as Djokovic does in Djokovic fashion, he took the wins out of his sails. And Djokovic was able to get break back immediately afterwards and set up a tiebreaker as both held serve without returning serve, without doing well on the return serve end of the portion. So the third set, let's see, let's, let's get right into it. So Steph gets break early to make a one love. Again, you got to give credit where it's due. I mean, he was able to make uh, Djokovic get on some unforced errors. I assume he, he had some clean winners as well. Uh, he was able to uh, find some nice digs in around the court, especially around the baseline. Um, 
You know, again, it was it was one of those things where, you know, Steph did well. He did well. And I wish that would be what we would expect from him in that third set. But it wasn't the case uh, because, as we all know, Djokovic would break back to make a one-all after uh, Stefan Tsitsipas' forehand goes wide. And that's, again, his forehands were very, very erratic. There are times where his forehands were a thing of beauty. You know, there are other times where it would go wide or go long or he would just make these poor, poor choices with his forehand where it would just end rallies sooner than expected. And again, that's something that needs to be effect, that needs to be addressed. That's something that needs to be fixed if Stanislavos wants to have a, 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 a long career within the sport. I mean, obviously, he is expected to, uh, but if he wants to make a name for himself in terms of winning majors and, and attaining this sort of acumen and, and uh, you know, accolades, then I do think that he needs to focus on those forehands because they're not up to stuff. They're not up to par with what we expect from him. Uh, so yeah, overall, the ba- the forehands were a cause of concern throughout this entire match, and as ev- as evident by the break that Djokovic would get. So Steph forehand down the line sets up the hold as he would then hold to make it 2-0. Again, as I mentioned, very, very erratic. The forehands are very much in, in, in question. Uh, you need to be very well-skilled in that department, uh, forehands. If you're not able to do, do well in forehands, then what's the point of succeeding in tennis? Um, then what's the point of playing tennis, that is? Uh, so Joker Joker loves on uh, would hold on love to make a three two, Steph holds to make a three all backhand clean winner makes a four three changeover. I assume that's on Djokovic. Uh, Steph holds on love to make it four all uh, backhand online gets Joker the love hold to make a five four changeover. Again at this point they were just, they just knew that they would win the service game and not do that well in the return game. Um, I, these games within the set ended sooner than expected uh and that's to be expected uh <laughs> i know i just i just sort of canceled myself out there by adding a double positive or d- double negative i don't know what it, what i just did but um yeah overall the return game was very lacking in this match and as and that was that was to be expected in that third set uh i know i just canceled myself out there by saying we didn't expect this but now we do expect it understand that I'm coming this from a very sort of neutral perspective. We expected it, but we also didn't expect it. Uh, if I can explain it correctly like that. Uh, so yeah, backhand down the line, gets Joker the love hold to make a 5-4 changeover. Steph holds, followed by Joker hold as first set serve was unreturned to make it 6-5. And then Steph holds to make a tiebreaker. So yeah, overall, Djokovic and Stavros both knew that they would hold serve. There were times where Djokovic would just stand there while Sitsipas would serve an ace, anyone move. Uh, so they all knew that it would go down to tiebreakers, and tiebreakers did. Because overall, Djokovic just owned Sitsipas on this tiebreaker. And to say otherwise would be a massive course correction. It would be a massive sort of watering down what transpired because at one point since well, i mean Djokovic was up five love in this in this tiebreaker and he was on on course of winning this game of winning the tiebreakers in a very quick way but overall there were times where because of the audience participation because of audience involvement it did mess up Djokovic's psyche and it was at five one five two where he just heard a shriek in the back when Djokovic was going to go for like a routine forehand down the line winner to set up set to set up championship point, and you just hear a shriek in the background, 
And you just see Djokovic just beaming at him, just darting him in the back. I think it was in a, in the back of his periphery, so he couldn't see him. But again, it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, I know people crap on the US Open audience, but I think the Australian Open audience has them beat. I really do. At this moment in time, I think they have them beat because if you look at Medvedev and the abuse that he had to go through at the Australian Open last year for the final against Nadal, and then you go to this year where you see Novak Djokovic not get that much love or adoration uh, and uh, and get hecklers, that's something that I don't think we would see in this year's US Open. You know, again, I know it may be sort of a uh, controversial opinion, but I definitely do think we're at a point in time now where the Australian Open audience is being more rowdy and hostile than the US Open audience. And for me, like, I, I like audience involvement. Like, I do. I, I think if you're an athlete that's making millions of millions of dollars a year, you got to deal with the hecklers. Um, that's to be, to be expected. But I don't like the normalization of hecklers at sporting events, especially in tennis where it's supposed to be very nice and silent and you're supposed to watch the match. To have hecklers in a tennis match, that's just not the right thing. If it's at a football game or at a rugby match, I assume Australians love rugby, then by all means, have hecklers. But when it's at a tennis court or in my situation, like a comedy club, no, I don't want hecklers. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I want everyone to enjoy their time. If If you dislike a tennis player, then leave the tournament. Then leave the arena. There's no reason to heckle it in the middle of a rally it makes no sense for that to happen uh so overall i definitely do think that that sort of got into his psyche because then Stefan Sosmos would, would be able to pull out two or three more points out of it and while we all knew the writing on the wall that Djokovic would win that definitely did prolong the game um, the match to a certain extent so that streak uh, was was not needed and hopefully he's he he was ejected out of the out of the game he was he was shown the door because I don't think that's a good thing whatsoever. But overall, Steph Forehand goes along as Djokovic would win to make it 7-5. So overall, Novak Djokovic wins his 10th Australian Open title. Uh, I think he he's, he's he now wins the most amount of uh, Australian Open. I think he holds the title for most amount of Australian Open wins. Um, I mean, that's already the case beforehand, but this is just, this just solidified it. And Overall, I, I thought that this tournament was okay. Uh, I, I thought it was okay. I'm not going to say it was that great. I mean, it's no 2021 U.S. Open. You know, it's no 2022 Wimbledon. Uh, I thought it was an okay major. Uh, I thought the breakpoint documentary, I mean, we can discuss more about this in the next podcast about whether whether or not this Australian Open was fun or enjoyable. Um, so I'll sort of leave it off at, for next for next episode's uh, discussion is whether this Australian Open was good and whether or not it did help out tennis. Um, so remind me about that for next next uh, podcast. But overall, I did think that this this major was okay. Uh, we didn't really learn that much other than the continued dominance of Novak Djokovic and how he's on now in in that in that mindset of trying to equal Rafa Nadal in terms of majors one. I think Nadal has 22, Joker has 21. So right now we're at a moment in time now, or I think both of them have 22, in fact. Um, so now we're, we're now at the moment in time where they're going to be competing. You know, they're, they're going to be competing against one another. And hopefully Nadal is able to come back from his injury. I know he has a bit of an injury. That's one of the reasons as to why 
He lost in that first round of the Australian Open. So hopefully when he comes back for Roland Garros, we're able to see more competitive matches between the two. Uh, it would not shock me whatsoever if we saw Novak Djokovic beat Nadal at the French Open. It would not shock me at this moment in time because I, I do think that the only person that can stop Djokovic now is Novak Djokovic. Uh, I still think that he's the most dominant player on the circuit. Uh, he's, in my opinion, the GOAT of tennis. Um, I think when we think about Novak Djokovic now, we're thinking about an individual who's poised, who doesn't have to go through the BS vaccine requirement situation as he did last year. And by the way, I do want to admit that the fact that he won this year's Australian Open after being denied entry into Australia last year because of the vaccine requirements is bittersweet. It's poetic justice. It's everything you love about sports. It's amazing. The fact that people weren't talking about that after the, the win is, is important. You know, the fact that he was able to to win against the totalitarian state of of Australia and to win against a, a country that did everything in its power to restrict Djokovic from coming into this into the country and treating him as a martyr, as if he committed a crime for not being vaccinated by a bit for by a big pharmaceutical company, is is to me is is great because I truly truly loved the 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 poetic justice that happened with his win this year. It, it was great, and I'm I'm so happy for him. I'm happy for him for that reason. You know, obviously as it's a guy that's neutral on a lot of things. You know, I for one just root for storylines. And that was a beautiful storyline. So that, that in and of itself makes Australian Open great for that reason alone. But I'll break down my overall thoughts on the Australian Open, whether or not I enjoyed it, whether or not I loved it, and next in next episode. So go check out for that. Go tune in for that. Uh, but overall, those are my thoughts on the recap for tennis. Uh, hopefully, Stefan Sisbos is able to come back. I know he does his best during the ATP schedule f- in particular for that clay season. I know the clay season is when he does the best. Uh, so hopefully he's able to come back better than ever. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with him for the French Open. Uh, I definitely do think that he is a person that you got to keep in mind. Uh, because again, he not only reached the final of a hardcore major, the Ocean Open this year, but he also reached the the final for a clay court major, which was the French Open in, back in 2021. So again, we've seen Stefan Sousa do well for the French Open. And hopefully he's able to do that again. Because yeah, I, I do want to see him back. I, I do think that at some point or another, he's going to win a major. At some point or time, he's going to win a major. Uh, who knows when it's going to be? Again, I don't think he's ever going to win 20 majors. I think that ship has sailed. Uh, but he could win a few majors here and there. It all depends as to whether or not he has the mentality to win, whether or not he has the mental fortitude to win, and uh, whether or not he's able to continue from from the success that he's been having in the past few years or so. So yeah, overall, those that's my tennis topic for you guys today. Uh, quite a bit of a quickie, uh, but hopefully you got the job done in terms of giving you my overall thoughts on this major, on this tournament. All right, so let's get into our next topic here. So Jordan Peterson recently appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I'll be quite honest with you, I thought it was okay. I'm not going to say I enjoyed it. I thought it was okay. I thought it was it was fun for what it was. Uh, which was a mentally manic eye trying to make sense of the world and speaking very incoherently about things that no one really knows about, uh, which I think that's what you kind of expect from Jordan Peterson. By the way, I, I like Jordan Peterson. Okay, I know that 
I've said my thing about Jordan Peterson. I released a YouTube short a few a few weeks ago, uh, and I got trashed in the comment section. It's like you don't know Jordan Peterson like that. It's like it, it, I don't think I don't think it takes a Sherlock Holmes to decode who Jordan Peterson is. All right, he's a guy who who attracts men to be more manly, and he got into politics because of Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire, and because of that, he's sort of taking a step back. Uh, that that's Jordan Peterson. All right, he basically educated men how to be better and be more, ad, uh, be more open and and adapt to today's environment and how to be well capable and functioning on your own. I mean, that's what he did, and he successfully was able to uh, preach that message. And then he got into the politics, and that's when things got a little bit out of hand because then it definitely was a conflict of interest when you see him interview. Netanyahu, you know, it's a definitely a conflict, a conflict of interest when, you know, he's openly trying to, I don't know, curry favor with the Daily Wire because he's on the Daily Wire program. I don't know. It's just a weird situation. You know, it's just a weird thing. Uh, so in, in that way, I, I don't really care to care to like him. Uh, but in terms of the overall life advice, I mean, I think it's solid. I think his overall life advice is actually important to hear. I mean, not only for like republicans but just for anybody in general I, I just think that it's important to hear that kind of life advice uh but jordan peterson uh was on rogan and he discussed uh, how his clinical psychology license uh is being stripped away by the canadian government based off of his tweets uh on you know elliot page and how they were deemed transphobic and whatnot and i tried looking up like the 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 clinical psychology license thing and it looks like it's quite valid so uh, in that regard, I don't think he should be stripped away from that. I mean, if anything, it, it just kind of kind of shows that he's kind of cringe, because again, it's so easy to go after trans people. Like, it, it, it you're shooting fish in a barrel at this moment in time. You know, it's what well, what what's the point for that, right? Again, I I know it's very easy to go after trans people, very easy to do that, uh, and to be like, oh, you're not a you're not a woman, you're a man, you have a dick. It, it's very easy to fall into that discourse. And it gets so tiring because this discourse has not been changed in the past eight years, right? Like, I first found, was hip to, like, The Daily Wire, to Dave Rubin, to, to Ben Shapiro back in 2014, 2015. I, I saw their roundtable conversations on trans people and whatnot. This was back when I was in high school, so I had a very different political compass back in the day. Uh, but... I remember, I remember that conversation happened back in 2014, 2015, back when the IDW was first popping off. And it's been eight years now. And the conversation has still not shifted. We're still talking about trans people eight years afterwards in, this, in the same conversation. Really, we're at that moment in time where, where, where we're discussing trans people for, for the thousandth time. People aren't tired about this. Again, aren't trans people tired about this? Like, what, what is up with this? What is up? I mean, at some moment in time, you got to look at it and say to yourself, enough's enough. We've talked about trans people ad nauseum. I, can, we talk, can we talk about anything else? Like, can we talk about anything else besides this? What is the, por what is the purpose of it? Like, we can all, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, having kids be trans, that's a little weird. I'm not going to lie. When you see like a six-year-old go through trans surgery, I'm like, that's not even a f fully functioning adult. Shouldn't there be a parent that says, hey, you know, maybe this is just a mentality kind of thing. You know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, turn like 
kids into trans just now like in an instant that's a little weird i mean we can all agree with that but if you're like a fully functioning adult what's the purpose you know what's the point of that but again it's it's one of those things where even if i talk about it like the 30 seconds where i talk about it that's the only time where i'll talk about like trans kids like that's it like i think that's the mutual mutually held opinion that we all have is that it's kind of weird for kids to be trans but we're not going to spend like hours and hours and hours and hours talking about what bathroom we should use and, and why men should go to women's bathrooms women should go to men's bathrooms or whatnot it's like at the end of the day no one cares like no one is really bothered by it no one's really affected by the trans discourse it really isn't it's just a pastime it's just, it's no different than talking about wrestling or no different than talking about football to them this is their football this is their wrestling uh, so again like i'm just so sick and tired of the trans of the trans debate because it really you're just running in circles it's shooting fish in a barrel it's not effective and it's been clearly ineffective for the past seven eight years uh, so overall, I do not understand why it's such a big deal to talk about trans people. And it, it's just, I was, I was fearful that this topic would go on like that. Uh, but thankfully Jordan Peterson did most of the talking and, and Rogan didn't because I was afraid that Rogan would be a part of it. And Rogan was just like sitting back and was just letting Peterson just yap his mouth, which by the way, that's really good of Rogan to do because I, I, at some point moment in time, you, you can't be like, I don't know. It's just weird to to have this the millionth conversation for the millionth time. It, it just it just how many how many more conversations can we have about it? Like how many like how many more conversations do we have to sit here and talk about how weird it is for there to be trans men in a male bathroom? It's like no one. We all use unisex bathrooms at home. Like what's the big deal about it? What's the big deal? Right. I mean, I, I remember one time the women's bathroom line was long, like somewhere. I think I was at a restaurant and uh, the women's bathroom line was, was long. And then like some chick was like, you know what? I'm just going go to go to the men's bathroom. And she went and then she went out. And then I was like, oh, cool. It's like, wh why is there such a big deal about bathrooms? Like, why? I, I mean, I don't get it. I don't get the trans thing. But overall, there were some good things about Jordan Peterson in this in this interview. He talked about the importance of community. He talked about the importance how the idea of community has been lost because of the overall advancements of our society. And in a lot of ways, I, th I thought in, in terms of that conversation, I thought it was more well-grounded. Um, and again, when I saw Jordan Peterson I, in this in this interview, I was like, okay, he's talking about the psychology license. He's wearing this weird suit. I don't know if you saw the suit that he was wearing on Rogan, but it was like one half was like maroon, the other was blue, um, and he was wearing this to Rogan, right? So how can you not make fun of that, right? I'm sorry. I know a lot of people may disagree with me, with me on that. People will dislike it, whatever. But like, how can you not look at that and say, oh, you look like Two-Face. Like you look like Two-Face. Like if you had like part of your face burned off, you could basically play Aaron, Aaron Eckhart and the dark knight and maybe not so much the same performance but you know what i mean you could play kermit you could play you could play two-face if he was played by kermit the frog i mean that's what it looks like <laughs> you know that's what it looks like here um and again how can you not make fun of it i know i got a lot of dislike for that jordan pearson twitter video 
But like, how can you not look at that and think to yourself, oh yeah, that's a funny dude. That's a guy that you, you should make fun of. Like, I'm sorry, that is. That is a guy you should make fun of. And it, honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with people making fun of people that you admire, all right? I, I remember I got so much hate for that. Maybe I was just going through a bad day that day. I think it was, this was back when I, I, I did like a show in South Boston, like a comedy show in South Boston. I got like a $100 parking ticket. And then I, I went back home and I saw the, my video and I saw like it get some views, some traction. And then I saw the comments for it. I'm like, oh no, this is like the worst day ever. <laughs> uh, but I, I shouldn't let comments affect me. I should not let the comments affect me. I'm getting to that point now where I'm just going to like, I'm just going to not look at the comment section for my YouTube shorts. And it's for like the actual video, sure. But for like the YouTube shorts, it's like, I don't know who's watching this. I don't know what the algorithm is doing. I don't like it for sure. I don't think the YouTube shorts have been that. I mean, for me, like in terms of views, it's been good. But in terms of creating like a healthy, honest discussion about things, I don't think it's doing a good enough job of that because things are being taken out of context. You got to fit within the one minute mold. So things can definitely be taken out of context. Things may not make really necessarily make sense unless you hear the full video that's on my YouTube channel. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I have a love-hate relationship with the with the YouTube short thing because on one hand, it, it has been, it's it's good. I mean, I can definitely see why they would resort to that. But at the same time, I don't think it adds to an, a healthy discussion about things at all. Um, but overall, those are my just those are my just my thoughts on that. But overall, Jordan Peterson on Rogan, I thought it was nice. You know, I thought it was a nice breezy listen. It, it lasted for three hours, so obviously, uh, if you're working, definitely do that. Don't just watch this uh, like I did with a with a bucket of popcorn, like I did. Uh, it's it's I don't know if it's that worthy. I don't think it's that worthy to dedicate your Sunday night to listen to Peterson on Rogan with a bucket of popcorn and and uh, with the seltzer. Uh, I don't seltzer water that is. Um, I don't know if it's if that if it's that important. Uh, but yeah, overall, it was one of those things where it was just a nice listen. Uh, I do definitely do think he's compromised though when he when he joined with the Daily Wire, as evidenced by that uh, Netanyahu interview. Uh, that's when I looked at it and I'm like, okay, this is there's a change here, and I'm not I'm not really into it. Uh, but I don't think he's been the same guy since his rehab stint. I would I really don't think so. I think something messed up with him. I think there's something messed up with him in there, you know, ever since that rehab stay. Um, but again, I don't want to talk too much about that. So overall, those are my thoughts on the Jordan Peterson on Rogan situation. Let's get into news. Let's get into our next bit of discussion here. All right. So Shah Rukh Khan's Patan was recently released. And overall, my overall thoughts on it, as Ebert and Siskel would say, Siskel and Ebert would say, two thumbs up. Uh, I really enjoyed my time while watching this film. Again, Shadow Khan's Baton was recently released, and as Siskel and Eber would say, two thumbs up. It was a fun watch. It was a fun listen. Uh, fun listen. Fun watch. Uh, I, overall, I thought that this, this film was good. It was really good, and it serviced what it needed to be serviced. Um, I thought the, I personally thought that the sound design was really good. Uh, the visual effects were good enough for a Hindi film. Um, you know, there were some great acting performances as well by Shah Khan, by Deepika Padukone. John Abraham, in my opinion, stole the show in this film. Uh, I thought his villain role was very well made, very well done. Uh, the character motivation for John Abraham's character uh, was was very 
harrowing because when I saw that scene in the theater, I'm like, dude, they're really going for it. Like, I did not expect it for, for it to be that dark, especially for, I assume, is to be like a PG-13 film. I didn't expect that to be that dark. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those films where you watch and you think to yourself that, you know, to me, when I watch this film, you know, it does borrow the same beats and patterns as, say, a James Bond film or even that, I would say, of, of a Captain America Winter Soldier, where it does have that same sort of plot, you know, very similar plot, very similar idea of those two films. And I, I just thought that it was very, very well made. I thought it was very well made, very well shot. Uh, the visuals are just great. Um, the cinematography is great. You know, it, it, the, the, the writing is there's times where where there's comedic writing in, in the film and there are times where it can be very dark and, and dense and the fact that they were able to handle those two those two qualities in that film were were just important and to me to be honest to be honest with you was very well made um i thought the way that they were able to handle the comedy side of things as well as the more darker grittier sort of things and the way that they were able to mesh those two styles well is something that very few films could really muster, especially when you're talking about Bollywood. Um, you know, I, I thought that was very, very nice of that. And if anything, hopefully this film can be the Hindi film version of Top Gun Maverick, where it can inspire people to go back into the cinema and watch theaters on the big screen. You know, but yeah, I mean, it was just nice. It was just a nice viewing. It was. It's everything that you want to see from a big budget masala film within Bollywood, right? I mean, it's just a well-made, well-shot film with, you know, great character motivations. Uh, there were times where, I mean, not to nitpick, but there were times within the movie where I'm like, why did, why, why was that done in that way? You know, I mean, there were certain flashbacks to, ex to explain certain things to the audience, which I understand why they did it. Uh, you know, they got to sort of dumb it down a little bit for the average viewer, but I didn't think that those flashbacks were that much needed. Uh, that's a nitpick that I have that I don't think is that important. But uh, even like certain you know, characters in the film where I'm like, I don't really get it. Um, I thought, uh, not to nitpick here, but Deepika Padukone's character, I thought could have been well, could have been a little bit better developed in terms of her character motivation, in terms of her um her ability to be a double agent, I thought that that was sort of lacking in a lot of ways. Um, again, there were just certain things in the film that could have been better, but again, I would be nitpicking if I pointed it out and if I addressed it. Um, yeah, that's that's sort of how I would say. Where Patan is is a good film. It's a good film. There are certain things that could have made could have make it that would have made it a better film. Uh, but overall, it was a nice film to watch for two and a half hours. Uh, it does. It does not feel like a two and a half hour movie. By the way, it does not feel like a two and a half hour movie. There wasn't a lot of breaking out into song and dance in the film, which I thought was nice. I feel like the overall trend of that is sort of dying. Uh, I don't think that's which maybe that's a little bit of a bad thing because you know obviously when you think about uh, Dharma Productions films like Karan Johar films you know you th sort of think about that you know of them breaking it out into song and dance maybe I'm coming in from, from like an NRI perspective or that's sort of what, what I'm uh, used to and privy to um, but overall it was just again it, if if YRF is making a spy universe film and making a spy universe 
franchise, I definitely do think that this is a step in the right direction because War was also a film that was released within the Wire of Spider Universe, which was also pretty good. And obviously, we know Tiger, Ekta Tiger, and Tiger Zendahe, uh, which, by the way, this film has a cameo by Salman Khan. And there's a little bit of a post credit scene where they're both sitting on a train track and they're like, we've been in this industry for over 30 years. And obviously they're referring to their characters, but it's also kind of metaphorical for their acting careers where Salman Khan asked uh, Shah Rukh Khan that they've been doing it for over 30 years. Who should we pass the b- uh, baton to? And they're like, that guy? No, 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 no. They didn't name any names, but I wish they I wish they would. I, I wish they, it, would, it would be such like a cool shot to like name an actor in the post credit scene. Like, no, we should, we can't let, you know... Varun Dawan be the next guy. Uh, no, no, that's not a bullet to Varun Dawan. I'm not catching. I'm not making Varun Dawan catch a stray here. Okay, I'm just saying that. Uh, I thought that that post credit scene was very, very nice. Um, but overall, I thought it was a, it was a nice film. It was a nice film, and again, it's a, it, it's what gets people inspired to watch movies. You know, this film should inspire people to go see movies in the big screen because it is meant for the big screen. Uh, it is meant to hear the sound design, to be able to see the cinematography, uh, to see the visual effects and the CGI that, comparatively speaking, for a Bollywood film is not that bad. Uh, again, if you're comparing it to a Hollywood film, if you're compared to, comparing it to a film made here out in the West, obviously the visual effects could have been better. I mean, there was a, not to spoil anything, but there's a scene where I think they're in Dubai uh, where John Abraham is on like a helicopter and it, it just looks so green screened. It looks so, so low budget. It looks like a, like a public access show, public access show on like your local channel. It really looks like that. The green screen looks like that where you look at it and I'm like, is it, am I watching like, like a public access TV show here <laughs> where it just looks so fake. Uh, but again, for comparatively speaking, for a Bollywood film, the visual effects are are good. They're good. I, I was going to say okay, but then I, I sort of re, re, rechanged it to good because then there are some other scenes where I thought it was good. I mean, that train sequence, very well made, very well shot. Um, and again, that's one of the highlights of that movie. The train sequence with Salman Khan and Shah Rukh Khan uh, fighting off and fending off those other prisoners uh, was very nice. Um, again, you know, it does dial up the absurdity a bit because you know there there was a moment in the film where again not to spoil anything but Salman Khan and Shah Rukh Khan are trying to make sure that they don't fall with the train tracks because apparently the train tracks were like uh, were TNT'd so all the trains were falling down and they were trying to go up to avoid being down in the gutter and being dead and they make this sudden jump to the train tracks and they hold on and I'm like, this This looks like Fast and the Furious. Like, what is happening here? Like, what is happening here? So that's why I, I try and say that it borrows the same beats and patterns as, say, James Bond. Because in a James Bond film, that would not, that would never happen. Uh, modern day James Bond film, that is. Uh, where that would just never happen. I mean, I'm, I'm sure James Bond has done parkour. He did parkour in Casino Royale in the beginning. Uh, but it wasn't to that extent where you saw them basically defy the laws of physics to justify the next scene <laughs> you know like i've never seen i've never seen a film uh maybe it just goes to show you that bollywood is like absurd in its own way but that literally defied the laws of physics what they just did i'm like this would never work out in any other situation in any other circumstance and honestly 
it, while I understand the reasoning behind it, um, I, I just thought that that scene sort of took me out of the movie for quite a second. Um, but yeah, overall, it was just a nice film. Um, thankfully, in my screening, there were no people that decided to go straight to the screen and dance and break out into impromptu song and dance for Jume Jopatan. You know, because I saw a lot of dumbasses out there uh, that did that at the end. So thankfully, that didn't happen in my show. Uh, <laughs> like, I, because there were a lot of clips that I saw from Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok that sort of documented that. So thankfully, there were no there were no individuals that decided to rush to the screen and break out into impromptu song and dance for Jume Jo Patan, as I saw on clips for on clips with on Twitter and TikTok. Uh, thankfully that was not the case whatsoever uh but yeah overall overall it was just a nice film it was just a nice film and again is it is it kind of weird to see like Shahrukh Khan who's in his late 50s be the romantic interest for Deepika Padukone sure yeah I understand that but at the same time it's a good film it's a good film um but yeah I mean it goes it goes to show you that you know he's still the king of Bollywood I mean Shahrukh Khan is still the guy you know, as we all know from DDLJ to all the Dharma Productions films to Om Shanti Om to all the other films that he was able to make to this day, you know, he's still that guy. He's still that individual that's able to bring people to the to the theaters. And yeah, while the overall love for him has become dogmatic at this point, and while there are a lot of sycophants out there that, I mean, I saw this interview, that I think a Hindi interview, where some guy was crying over Shah Rukh Khan. I'm like, dude... Stop it. You're embarrassing yourself. There's no reason to cry over a billionaire. Like, there's no reason to cry. You can like him. You can like an actor. There's nothing wrong with liking an actor. But again, don't have this dogmatic faith in, in actors and to billionaires because you're going to be disappointed. Uh, don't cry just because you watched uh, a film with your with your favorite actor. All right. Unless the ending is sad, sure, by all means, do cry. But if it's just like a regular action masala film, what's the point of crying? Like, what is the point... To shed tears about it uh so i saw that i'm like dude somebody get this guy like somebody control this guy there's no reason to cry there's no reason to cry especially over a movie like this uh a, a nice conventional action flick that had great moments and great visual effects good visual effects and, and great sound design you know there's no reason to cry over that but yeah overall i thought the film was 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 very nice and hopefully this can inspire people to go watch films in the theater uh, because we, as we all know, Brahmastra uh, was not able to do that, and I, I personally thought it was okay. I thought Brahmastra was an okay film. Uh, obviously, it borrows heavily on Harry Potter, very much so, very much so. Uh, but hopefully, this gets people into the theater. And I'll be honest with you, I saw this in in Massachusetts, you know, and the the theater was packed. It was packed for a Hindi film in an American movie theater. I did not think that would be possible i mean i did not think that that would that that would that would be possible at all so it goes to show you the the reach that hindi films have uh, on the world and most importantly just the 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 sheer presence alone of shadow khan right because again we're talking about an individual that honestly changed hindi films for the for for the better in a lot of ways i mean he was an outsider he came in he he was able to make some iconic classic movies that stand the test of time he was able to yeah, you know, then branch off into Devdas and Swades and, you know, was able to branch off into sort of more, you know, heartfelt roles, Chuck the India, you know, films that were not really in the rom-com sort of 
Karan Johar Avenue. And he was just able to create a career, you know, creating some of the best films within Hindi cinema. So again, it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, yeah, he still is that guy. You know, he's, he's in a lot of ways, he's like Tom Cruise, but without the weird religion attached to it. You know, he is the Hindi film version of Tom Cruise, where he, where he just is able to release hits. Despite his age, despite, you know, the fact that he's getting older, he's still able to release hits. And that's something that I don't think we can really see within the younger generation. So overall, those are my thoughts on Patan. Go see it. Go watch it. I didn't have it as my, my weekly pick because I assume everybody has has thought about it before. Uh, and for those who haven't watched Hindi films, I think this is a good starter to be watch Hindi films. I think this film and Three Idiots, I think, are good places where you can watch Hindi films. I think any Rajkumar Hirani film uh, you can really watch and really enjoy. Um, but overall, this film was really nice. Uh, Patan was a very good, nice watch. Uh, so yeah, that's that's my record. That's not my podcast recommendation. My podcast re- recommendation is something else. But overall, that's a film that I think you guys should watch. Uh, just a nice, just a nice fun watched. You know. All right, so let's get into my weekly pick, shall we? So each and every week, I recommend a book, a piece of art, a film that I really enjoy that I think you guys will enjoy as well. This week, uh, in regards to a sharp contrast from Patan, this film is completely the, completely the opposite of Patan because it is horror to the highest extent but this week i'll be recommending andres zolaski hopefully i'm saying his name right but andres zolaski possession uh this film is a horror film and i mean it's more like a psychological drama than a horror film but it has all the it it feels like a horror film uh because it basically documents a a relationship between isabella johnny's character and sam neill's character as well as the infidelities that they both wind up in and how chaos ensues because of it. I don't think there's a better way to describe it than that, uh, because if I break down the plot to you, you'll be like, what is this film? Why are you explaining this to me? You know, this is a film that you got to watch and see to believe, because there's a lot of crazy things that happen, that happen in this movie that I, for one, cannot explain to you. Uh, and if I did, it would not... It would be a disservice to the overall to the overall writing of of this film because I definitely do think that the writing and the direction of this film is really good, uh, and I was sort of sad to see that Zolowski made other films that weren't up to par with this film because this film is just amazing. It really is amazing. Um, you know, I mean, this is like an unofficial Cronenberg film. You know, if you like David Cronenberg, I think that you'll thoroughly enjoy this film. Thoroughly enjoy this film. I know that his son recently recently released Infinity Pool, which I hear nothing but good things about. Um, but if you do like Cronenberg, and if you like some of the earlier Polanski stuff as well, you will definitely like this film uh, because it does have that same vibe as those two directors. Uh, so Possession, go watch. Um, there's this miscarriage scene that was just like eye opening. Like it was. Basically, I don't want to spoil anything. I, I basically spoiled it. Uh, but there was a miscarriage scene in the middle of the film where I'm like, this is just crazy. Like, this is... I mean, it's everything that you want in a horror film, honestly. <laughs> I know I know. If, you, if I just say that, you'll be like, what is this film? Why are you recommending it to me? But you got to watch it to believe it. It's two hours long. It doesn't feel like two hours. you got to see it. Uh, Isabella... I mean, no, sorry, not Isabella Johnny. Isabella Johnny obviously was the standout role. I think she did well as... Um, as both sides of of um, Sam Neill's love interest being both the teacher and being the the wife 
and and uh, mother of of Sam Neill's child. Um, but overall, just a well acted performance by her, and just incredible direction by Zolowski. Just an incredible way to really depict this. Because if this was any other film director, it would be cringe. It would be not so great. But the way that he was able to handle it really goes to show you. Uh, just how careful he was in crafting the story. So Andrei Zulowski, Possession, go watch it. It's on AMC Plus or Shudder, so if you have those streaming services, then why not watch it? Uh, again, don't watch this with family members, you know. Uh, just watch this by yourself and with your friends and uh, just enjoy it for what it is. So yeah, Possession, go watch it. Uh, anyways, that's my time for you guys today, guys. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you guys like, subscribe, and click the bell icon for notifications down below. Make sure you subscribe on both my podcast channel and my podcast clips channel. Make sure you follow me on my Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at AJTucker, A-J-A-Y-T-A-J-A-K-K-A-R underscore the end uh, on all my platforms. Uh, make sure you rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And last but not least, make sure you spread it uh, through your WhatsApp chains and through your text chains. I think it's very, very important to spread it through word of mouth to get more, more people involved. Uh, I don't know what I'll be talking about next podcast. So I'll probably talk about my Australian Open recap, my overall thoughts on the Australian Open, whether or not this was a good major, whether or not this definitely reinvigorated love and interest for tennis for people. So we'll discuss that. Uh, other than that, guys, uh, I think that'll be it for you guys today. So, guys, thank you so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you guys on Thursday. We'll talk more about things within our political and societal realm, as well as talking about things within tennis as well. So, guys, thank you so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you guys on Thursday. All right, guys. Peace. See you all.